The medical response to the acute aftermath of the January 12th Haiti earthquake prompted ethical questions that will undoubtedly face again during another crisis. What are some of the lessons learned from the immediate response to the Haiti disaster? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Kirsch, co-director of the Center for Refugee and Disaster Response in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is also an associate professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the deputy director of the Johns Hopkins Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. What was so different about your experience in Haiti that caused you to write a recent article called The Line in JAMA? Why did you choose that title and what does it mean? So the line represents kind of the imbalance of needs. The line represents the literally hundreds or thousands of people who lined up at various sites through the city afterwards, desperately seeking health care. And so this line is this kind of unrelenting population of people that totally overwhelms the ability for an individual to respond. Usually when we respond in, in medicine, we have a doctor-patient relationship where we you know, do our best for every individual patient. But when you have another 500 people waiting at your door, it changes the way you interact with people because you don't have the time or capacity or resources to give everything that you think you should give to the individual patient. So when you arrive there, you're team must have been overwhelmed, as you say, by the limited amount of equipment and staffing and medicine. Do you think that this situation caused you to enter into ethical problems that you never had to face before, or at least hadn't faced in the United States? Absolutely. When you have literally thousands of people waiting to be treated, you have to triage them, not based on kind of their individuality or their individual problem, but rather based on all of the people waiting at your doorstep and who you think that you can treat the best and who you think your resources are best fitted for. So it really alters the way we you know, look at our patients and interact with our patients because of the overwhelming need and so few resources available. You know, when we triage in the United States, and all of us have done some of that, certainly in emergency rooms, what we really think is that everybody is going to be seen is just the order in which they are seen. So the person with chest pain goes to the front of the line. The person with a cold will ultimately be seen. But we never have to really juggle limited resources. I know you went there with what is called the GO team. Could you tell me a little bit about that? A number of us academicians at Hopkins who both do disaster research teaching as well as actually on-the-ground response. And after Katrina... There was increased interest both by our institution but also by the federal government, and we received some funding to develop acute health care response team, which we kind of expanded into a combination of health care and public health. And we have a group of over 200 individuals that we have done training programs on and brought their level of skill up to the appropriate amount in order to allow them to, you know, deploy into a, a resource-poor area. And so we were really right at the end, of, tail end of our uh, year-and-a-half-long training period, and Haiti occurred. And, and originally the team had planned to only be deployed domestically since the fund was from uh, Department of Homeland Security. But because of the overwhelming need in Haiti and because of the fact that we had all these pre-trained and excellent people who were ready for a disaster, we deployed a number of them to the Haiti. I know they must have been very, very well trained coming from where they did, but was ethical training part of the program for the GO team? I'm talking about prior to Haiti. No, and in fact, 
I've done a lot of work on this. The, the article that arose with my wife, who's a bioethicist, so she's the smart one in the family. Dr. Moon, yes. Dr. Moon, right. And we've actually, based on this experience in that article, done a lot of research in the area, and she's already an expert in the area, and really have found no evidence that that's been done anywhere. It's truly a need, and so we've been lucky enough to receive uh, some funding from a private foundation to conduct a workshop on this very issue which we hope to come up with in the end with some very basic, simple training tools to help people make these very difficult moral decisions. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Kirsch, co-director of the Center for Refugee and Disaster Response in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also an associate professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the deputy director of the Johns Hopkins Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response. And we're discussing ethical lessons learned from Haiti. Before I had that brief break, uh, you began to tell us about the model that you're developing as far as ethical training for a response team. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, currently, it's very conceptual. The workshop that we're going to convene is going to bring together both people who have actual response experience from the lowest level healthcare responder to more higher management type responders with the Federal Emergency Management Agency as well as the U.S. Navy, and then those who are expert in disaster ethics or ethics in general, and then this kind of field called moral psychology. Because when you put people into these situations where they're they're literally triaging lives and saying to some people that you will not receive care, it creates a very difficult emotional and kind of moral stress on people. So we're going to bring all these three groups of experts together, and we really hope to work out both an intellectual framework for how you make these decisions and then these practical tools that we hope will be very short interventions that we can do when people like arrive on the ground to assist them in making these kind of decisions. So this is a model that ultimately you will share with other response teams? Absolutely. That's the intent of this. If you wouldn't mind, could you tell us an anecdote or two about what went on in those first couple weeks of care that prompted this looking back at our standard of care? Do we have to evaluate our standard of care? Are we entering into a slippery slope that might lead to what people might call inhumane medicine? I guess two. One is very graphic, concrete, and the other is more abstract. The graphic one is we worked at the University Hospital in downtown Port-au-Prince, which was essentially destroyed, and so we worked out of tents. There was some surgical capacity there, but very limited, and the hospital was entirely overflowing where people were sleeping in the courtyard, sleeping all over the place, sleeping in hallways, um, rarely seen once they were admitted to the hospital. There are a number of field hospitals that were out providing surgery, and one night after the regular team had gone home, we'd leave two physicians behind to kind of cover the night shift. They covered five to 600 people who were inpatients, so to speak, and then whoever came into the emergency area during the evening. Some hospital had done surgery on two patients, and they brought them over to our hospital on ventilators asking for us to do post-operative care. We didn't have that capacity. We didn't have the doctors. We didn't have power. And so they had already closed their field hospital, so we accepted the patients just because we had no choice. And we extubated them immediately on arrival because we couldn't take our two physicians to bag the patients all night. And one of them died and one of them lived. And that's just the way it was because we didn't have those resources to provide those people. On the little more abstract side, we, on an everyday basis, saw people with horrendous 
horrible injuries and wounds and illnesses who we know were living, sleeping on the ground or maybe under a tarp at that point, whose family members were dead, who had no resources. And despite their horrible injuries and wounds, because the hospital is completely full, we basically discharged them to the street. And whether or not that was a death sentence, you wouldn't know, but the understanding was that their chance of getting longer-term care or care in general was almost zero. Yeah, the Israel Defense Force, which also arrived very early on, had an article in the New England Journal, and I'm struck by they tell the same story, operating and discharging the person to the street. And so the triage not only took place in the hospital, but actually the triage or the use of limited resources continues in what one would call the post-op care. Correct. So this is an added stress on the team. They did their job, and now you discharge the people, and you really don't know what the future, you know, really holds for them. It's been six months now. Do you have any information? Are there still, as you say, lines and triage going on in Haiti? Only now it takes the place or it deals with, say, rehabilitation or prosthesis or psychiatric stress. Is the same thing still going on? Well, you know, it's... (laughs) In Haiti, it's very hard to say because the norm in Haiti up until the earthquake was that at least half the population literally had no access to health care, and they died when they died because they had no access to care. And so, yes, now there are still limited resources there, but there are a number of people who believe actually the resources are greater there now than they were prior to the earthquake. So it's difficult to say. Clearly, there are thousands of people not getting the care they deserve. Is that worse than before or is it better before? It's a little hard to say. Yeah. I've read where 7,000 people a year die of tuberculosis and 5,000 people a year die of AIDS. And these are numbers way out of proportion to other countries. And this is before the earthquake. Correct. So it's very difficult to balance all of this. Now, you mentioned a lot of people were involved. Could you mind just saying there's many NGOs that existed in Haiti, certainly the best-known one that I know of is Partners in Health by Paul Farmer. Did they become involved in care? Did they play an active role? Yeah, they did. It's estimated before the earthquake that there are about 10,000 NGOs in Haiti. People have called Haiti the NGOocracy because all the health is basically run by NGOs. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they did. Partners in Health played a very large role just because of their pre-existing facilities. And frankly, a lot of their facilities um, were outside of Port-au-Prince, so weren't so damaged, so they had resources available. The smaller NGOs struggled to be involved into the disaster response because just because you provide food aid in a normal situation doesn't mean you can do disaster stuff. That's entire worlds of difference. But over the course of time, many of the NGOs have been much more greatly involved in the response. And now the hope is to turn more and more of the ongoing care, the ongoing rehabilitation, et cetera, over to the pre-existing NGOs that are familiar with the country. And there's a lot of collaboration going on there. Yeah, you mentioned food. And I, I wonder that the lack of food, sanitation, shelter after the quake, what part that might have ultimately played in the tragic death of so many people. Everyone predicted, myself included, and if you look me up on Google, you see lots of quotes from me about epidemics afterwards. Mm-hmm. They didn't occur. The interventions that took place on the more public health side regarding disease control and stuff seemed to have prevented what we've all feared would be a horrible late wave of particularly diarrheal disease because of the crowding. It really never occurred, which is reassuring and shows at least parts of the response went fairly well. That question's a little bit hard to answer, but in general, we did okay. The feeding issue, we did okay with also 
there's once again the issue of what do people usually get fed there and there are a lot of people who argue now that we're providing more kilocalories to the country than there were in the past so it's really hard with Haiti when you go to a country that is so profoundly economically repressed as Haiti. Now that you've had a chance to kind of sit back and take a deep breath, what, in your opinion, was done very well and what can be done better in the future? Haiti was difficult and complex for so many reasons in addition to the disaster itself. First, it's a country that is obviously incredibly poor. Second, it's a country that's rated as one of the most corrupt in the world. Third, it's a country that has essentially no infrastructure. There was one kind of port and one kind of airport. It's a country that essentially had no health care system or minimal health care system. And then it had this horrible event. And then maybe worse yet is it's so close to the USA that you can fly there in two hours and 15 minutes. And so there's this massive movement of American resources, both volunteer as well as government resources, into the country, which made the response different than anything else that has ever occurred and made it a much more complex and difficult to organize response. If you look at hardcore evidence, so the fact that there was no long-term outbreak is reassuring that we did at least some things right. The fact that there is still hundreds of thousands of people living in tents and no movement yet to provide housing for them shows that other things are not going well. So there's no black and white answer. We poured a ton of money into Haiti. We probably wasted a fair amount of money. We made some really good things and some not so good things. So is there a lesson that we can take away? I was thinking mainly, what do you tell doctors and other healthcare providers who may or may not be part of a disaster response team as far as they're thinking about joining one, being mentally equipped, as well as technically equipped? If you're going to respond to a disaster situation, it's imperative that you get the adequate training necessary to have the skills, and it's imperative that you come completely self-sufficient, or all you do is add to the mess. Well, I think we've really touched on a lot of issues today. Many doctors, myself included, sit back and say, well, maybe I should do that. But then if you hear something like this, you're only adding to the problem. And actually, you become part of the ethical problem, too. You go down there, and who do I take care of, this middle-aged doctor who had good intentions or these young people who are really part of the disaster themselves? I really want to thank you. You've really opened up a lot of doors and a lot of thinking, especially to the ethical issues, for joining us today. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for being our guest today, Dr. Thomas Kirsch. Thank you. And I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And as always, thank you for listening.